was the perfection of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that our righteousness doesn't quite touch. <laughs> it's not there. We need perfect righteousness to be saved. Welcome to Ben's Bible Podcast. I'm Ben Burkhart, your host, and on this podcast, we share refreshing and faith-building biblical truths. I hope you'll plan to join us on a regular basis. God bless you, and let's jump in to this week's episode. We started a series last time that I was here looking at the first angel and righteousness by faith. Today, we continue that series looking at the second angel and righteousness by faith. And you might guess what's coming next week. The third angel and righteousness by faith. Looking at how these things all fit together. So we have a lot of powerful Bible truth that comes together as a package and really prepares us for the coming of Jesus. When you look at that context in Revelation 14, these three angels precede the coming of Jesus. And they enlighten the world and in fact ripen the world for the return of Jesus. There are two ripe harvests that follow these three angels' messages. So there's a special work of these messages in Revelation to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. We want to know what is this message that will prepare us for the coming of Jesus. So before we dive into our Bibles, let's pray here this morning. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this this day, this wonderful Sabbath day of worship, we pray that you will bless our time here together by your Holy Spirit. Please help us to understand your message for this time. Lord, may you guide us by your Spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The message of the second angel was just read a moment ago. I will read that once more. Revelation 14 and verse 8. Revelation 14 and verse 8, and the Bible says here, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This morning, as we were driving to church, my wife was reading a, a devotional thought for our daughter, and it just happened to be the story of David and Goliath, that big giant famous story to all of us. And as she was reading that story, I was thinking, you know, David had a little stone in his sling. And with that little stone in his sling, he dropped a really big giant. <laughs> because God was behind it all. Right? God was behind it all. And it made me think about this message today and how this message and maybe this sermon is just a little stone in the sling. And I just pray that God can use that stone to drop the giants of this world that are in opposition to God and in opposition to the truth of God's Word. Can you say amen? amen? I pray that God takes down the giants and God lifts up His truth in Christ. We want to see that take place. So, in this second angel's message, we see that it follows, obviously, the first angel. There is a sequence to these messages. There is an order to these messages. And I'll begin this message with a, a short uh, story. Many of us are very familiar with the name Martin Luther. We've heard of that. And something happened that was pretty big back in the year 1517. It was a declaration that began to go to the entire world. Something that Martin Luther nailed 
onto the, the doorpost of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so that message was a message that really sparked the Reformation. Yes, some people had been thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it, and it was beginning to, to pick up speed. It was beginning to go to the world. There was a message that this Catholic priest nailed to that door, and this message was going to change the world forever. Martin realized that in his own church, where he was a priest, things were going on that were not of God. Teachings were going on that were bleeding his soul of all spiritual life. That he was in a situation where he could not experience peace with God through all the teachings that he had learned, through all the teachings that he had been taught to share, he realized that something was wrong. Something was missing. He did not have peace in his soul with God. He had a bunch of religious teachings, but he lacked that peace and that grace of God. And there was one verse that especially sparked the Reformation in the heart of Martin Luther. And that was the verse that is found in Romans chapter 1, in the 17th verse of Romans chapter 1. What is that verse in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17? The Bible says there in Romans 1.17, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. For herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That verse really struck the heart of Martin Luther. And it, and it started a reformation. It changed things. It changed things in this world. And so Martin was able to find peace from God. Now in his church, he had been used, very used to something called penances. How many of you know what penances is? Some people may know. Uh, penances was something that you would combine with a process of forgiveness. It was some kind of meritorious works that would be combined. So if you went to the priest and you would confess your sins, then he would say, okay, well, you're forgiven, but you need to do this. Uh, these Hail Marys or you know, this thing or that thing. He would have a bunch of things that you need to do to help atone for your sin, to help pay for your sin. That by those good works, you could get yourself on the good side of God. You could be forgiven by doing those extra good works. You were sincere if you went and did those good works. And so in an essence, you were kind of earning that forgiveness because you were doing something good to atone for your bad, for your sin. And so Martin Luther had been very used to that teaching, and yet he realized that his soul was left empty. And people took this very seriously. I mean, some people were walking miles on their knees, they were walking up staircases, they were bleeding. There were people doing flagellations where they're whipping themselves to try to beat the sin out of them and say, well, God will forgive me if I beat myself and whip myself enough. This was the teaching, and not just was, but is still the teaching of the church. If you look throughout Catholic nations, the Philippines is a great case in point. Um, you can find this, right? All right, praise the Lord for the Philippines. We have some sisters here uh, today from the Philippines. So, uh, but you can still find this, this practiced throughout the world uh, based on those teachings. So Martin realized that that was not the way to God and he realized in Romans 5.1 that it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are made just 
by faith. And this is how we have peace with God. Because we believe in God. Because we trust His promises. We hold on to what Jesus has done for us in our place. This was what began that great reformation. It sparked something in Martin's heart. And he presented this truth to many people, but unfortunately, the organized church of his day, he was hoping to reform the church, but the church at large rejected that message and said, no, we're not going to go that way. We are infallible. And yet the Bible says they are fallible. <laughs> fallen, fallen. And so they rejected that message and embraced their own ways instead of following what the Bible says. Martin realized that, that we must be born again, that we must experience a new heart through Jesus Christ, and that He will deliver us from sin through faith in Him, through faith in His promises, faith in His Word. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. How do we overcome? Through faith, through trusting God, through trusting His promises and trusting what Jesus has done for us. So Martin began to learn these powerful truths that we must believe God, that we must live by faith, that we must overcome by faith, by trusting in the power and the promises of God. Now there's a couple passages that I'd like us to look at here in regard to righteousness by faith. One from the Old Testament, another from the New Testament. So we're going to go back to Isaiah 53 in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 53, a very powerful prophetic passage dealing with the coming Messiah or Savior of the world. Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy. And this chapter was written about 800 years before the time of Jesus, just to give you a little context, historical context. Isaiah 53 and verses 4 through 6 read this way. Surely, speaking of Messiah, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible speaks here prophetically about the Savior, the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled this prophecy precisely. The Bible tells us here that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and then it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. How do we find peace with God? Do we earn it? Do we deserve it? No, we don't. The Bible says we've all gone astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus volunteered 
to come and take our punishment for us. It says, by His stripes we are healed. So how can we teach people that they need to flagellate or whip themselves and beat themselves and make their own stripes to heal themselves? No, that can't be. It's only Messiah. It's only the Savior. It's only Jesus who was whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross for our sins. He took our punishment and with His stripes we are healed. We have peace with God because Jesus took our chastisement. He took our punishment. This is a substitutionary death, and the prophecies are very clear that Christ died and suffered in our place because He took the sins of the world upon Him. He took our sins upon Him. This is powerful, that Jesus sets us free because He took what we deserved. Now the Bible goes on to say more in verse 8 that he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Jesus was stricken for us. Verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so again, it keeps reiterating this point that Jesus died there for us. His soul was made an offering for our sins. And this is a powerful truth. This is the heart of the gospel, the heart of righteousness by faith, that Jesus paid it all on the cross of Calvary. And in fact, the Bible says that he'll even see his seed. He'll see the fruit of this work. He'll see his offspring, which means he resurrects. He comes back to life. He doesn't stay in the grave. And that's powerful that the prophecy actually shows us that. It also goes on to say in verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, our lawlessness, our sin. He justifies many. Talk about being justified by faith. Do we have to believe? Is that, is that a big part of this? Do we have to trust in him? You notice what verse 1 says in this chapter? It says, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who has believed? We must believe to be justified through Jesus. Jesus paid a great price, but we must trust Him. We must believe in Him. We must believe in what He's done for us. We receive Him. We accept Him by faith. And Jesus justifies us by faith. He makes us right with God. He gives us peace. Our soul is forgiven. Our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus, by his suffering and chastisement that was on our behalf. This is righteousness by faith, justification by faith. Now the Bible gives us one more powerful verse before we move on to the next passage. It says, therefore, verse 12, will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus bore our sin to the cross as the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. 
Jesus was our lamb. And then it tells us in the, the next verse that he is also our what? Our intercessor. The Bible says that he made intercession. He makes intercession for us. Who is it that goes between us and God to make sure that we have peace with God? It's Jesus, right? If we miss that, we miss the gospel. Jesus is our intercessor. We don't need a whole list of intercessors. And yet, Martin Luther's church was teaching, you have to have a bunch of intercessors. You won't be well unless you come to the priest, unless you come to the church, unless you come to the head of the church, which to them was a man, not Jesus. And they also said you have to come to the, the saints. All kinds of things, all kinds of intercessors and, and flagellations and penances and things that you would have to do to gain peace with God. And the Bible says Jesus already paid it. Jesus already gained it. Jesus is our intercessor. We must believe by faith in Him. We must trust in Him. So as Martin Luther began to realize these very truths of righteousness by faith, his life was changed. His heart was changed. He had a new mission, a new passion in his life. While I'm talking, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 in the New Testament. He had a new passion in his life, and that was to serve God because God paid it all. Jesus paid it all, and he felt peace for the first time in his life. This is righteousness by faith. Now, as we look at Galatians chapter 2, Galatians is a, is a very popular letter in the New Testament that explains righteousness by faith. And it tells us here in chapter 2 of Galatians, looking at verse 16, and following, it tells us this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Martin Luther realized that in his experience that he could not be justified by the works of the law. It was by faith in what Jesus had done for us. It was the perfection of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that our righteousness doesn't quite touch. <laughs> it's not there. We need perfect righteousness to be saved. And that comes through Jesus as a gift. We accept it. We receive it by faith. Notice this also, verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. In other words, could some people take the grace of God and say, well, hey, I've got a ticket. Want to go with me on a sin ride? You know, I've got a, a free pass to sin. Is that the right idea? Is that what the gospel means? No. The gospel changes us. It transforms us where we want to follow what's right. So the fruit of righteousness by faith is sanctification by faith. That we begin to learn the way of righteousness. We're saved by Christ, what He's done for us. 
And Jesus gives us a new heart that we want to do His will. We want to do what's right. Jesus is not a minister of sin. The gospel is not about, I'll pay it all so you can live like the devil. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel changes us. It says, if, we, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, then we are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If I build again the life of sin, I'm making myself a sinner in spite of knowing the truth about Christ. And that is not going to pass anywhere. It says in verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Something else Martin Luther realized back in the 1500s was that his own church was selling indulgences to people all throughout the land to build something very famous. You guys ever see some of those pictures of St. Peter's Basilica over there in Rome? Really big place of worship and it's beautiful architecture and things like this. How did they pay for all of that? Well, they were selling free passes to commit sin. It was called indulgences. Martin Luther got pretty upset about that, as well as a lot of other reformers. They said, wait a second here. Sin is wrong. How can you sell tickets to live in sin? And even the church had put their approval on it. How can you sell that? Those indulgences. No way. That's not the gospel. That's not it. And yet still, they believe that, oh, it's okay. You know, they, people get away with things. And then they're getting, they get passes here and there. And so they were selling indulgences, and that is not the gospel. That is not righteousness by faith. That's presumption. That's choosing to live in, in sin. So righteousness by faith gives us peace with God. And because we love God and God is with us, He empowers us to live a righteous life. Jesus calls us to, to go and sin no more. He says, look, here's the path. Walk in this way. We're saved by faith in Christ and by His perfect righteousness, and then He leads us in the way of righteousness. Righteousness imparted. Righteousness imputed. Righteousness on our behalf. That's righteousness by faith. And then Jesus helps us to learn His righteous ways, to do what is right in the eyes of God. You see, the Bible says that, that faith, living faith, has works, right? If you believe something, it changes you. It changes how you are. And if it doesn't have works, then it's not really living faith. It's something called dead faith. If you say a tornado's coming, we better get down in the basement, and then you don't do anything about it, well, do you have faith that that tornado is really coming? <laughs> so, so faith has, has this uh, fruit, right? This fruit that comes out of the experience of justification by faith. What a wonderful, powerful message the Lord gives us here. And so... In, in verse 20, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself for us. We live today with Christ living in our hearts. And what kind of life will Christ live in our hearts if we have him there by faith? He will live a righteous life and he'll give us peace. He gives us peace because He paid our debt. He paid for our sins. And he, he lives out that righteous life in us. We choose to work with Him to live out that life. 
Verse 21 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So he didn't want to take the Martin Luther beforehand approach. He wanted to take the Martin Luther after conversion approach, which is justification by faith, that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus did it all. So when we look at this, we realize that that large organization that Martin was a part of had actually fallen from God's grace. It actually fallen from God's truth. And they had, they had actually institutionalized sin. If you can believe that, imagine that. That they said, look, this is what we, we as an organization stand for this. Certainly there were members who probably didn't buy into that and said, oh, we don't believe that. But as, a, as an organization, that was the teaching that was, and still is today, embraced a false gospel message. They have fallen from grace. They have fallen from the truth of God's Word. So how did this all play out? Did God know anything about this story before it happened? Did prophecy know anything about this story before it happened? Oh yes. It's clear in the Bible, it's clear in prophecy that Babylon is fallen. Now, you wonder about the word Babylon. That word goes back to the Tower of Babel, and it means confusion. And that word plays on down through history, through ancient Babylon, and it plays on down into the last days in Revelation's prophecies, referring to spiritual end-time Babylon. Spiritual end-time confusion. Confusion of what? Confusion of faith. Because the Bible says that Babylon is fallen. You cannot fall unless you're up somewhere before that, right? So the church in the beginning was looking pretty good, and then they started to fall, and they fell, not just once, but twice. Is fallen, is fallen. Twice fallen. So the Bible predicted all of this before it happened. And, in fact, this kind of situation is a stench in the nostrils of God. Men claiming to follow God, but living in sin. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you know, God talks about, in Isaiah 65, people who make Him angry. Isaiah 65, verses 3 through 7 says this. I won't, probably won't read it all, but I'm going to touch some points. Um, Isaiah 65, verse 3 says, A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in the gardens, and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves, and lodge in the monuments, uh, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things in their vessels, which say, Stand by yourself, do not come near me, I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Verse 7 tells us that their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers, uh, they have, it says, which they have burned incense upon the mountains. Verse 7, it says, they blaspheme me upon the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. God will repay. So, Isaiah the prophet speaking about ancient Israel. He says, look, these people are claiming to follow me. They're claiming that they are my people, and in fact, it's my people, but they have turned from me. Their heart is not with me. Their heart is not following me. 
and they're living in sin. And they're saying, look, we're holier than you. Don't come near. So they had this outward appearance of holiness. Have you ever seen that in churches today? An outward appearance of holiness? We've got all the rituals and we've got these things and we, we, we worship God. Outward appearance of holiness, inward corruption. Corruption of, of belief, of teaching, of practice. That's exactly what happened back in ancient Israel. And God's saying, look, this stuff will be happening in the last days of earth's history. A departure from the truths of the Bible. A departure from the faith of Christ. And so this is exactly what happened. God says, it's like a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all day. And I don't think we like smoke in our nose. It's offensive, isn't it? It's offensive. God says, this is offensive to me and I will take care of it. They have blasphemed me and I will take care of it. So let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. And the Bible speaks about this power there noted as noted as a woman, but not just any woman. The Bible mentions that it's a great whore or harlot, okay? Which means immorality, which means unfaithfulness. Read Isaiah, read Ezekiel, chapter 16 and 23 especially. And you will see that the symbol of a harlot was used when God's people were not faithful to Him. And so when you look in the New Testament in Revelation, when it describes a last day system of Babylon or confusion, a last day harlot, it's talking about a church gone against the Lord. It's talking about rebellion in a system. And so the Bible mentions there in Revelation 17, prophetic language it says about halfway through verse 1 of chapter 17 come hither and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters you might ask well what does it mean many waters many waters well that's in verse 15 he said unto me the waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues is this a global system is this a big system it is right because the Bible says it's covering all kinds of peoples and languages and cultures. This is a global, big system that's being described here. And it says that she is unfaithful, a great whore who sits upon many waters. A great unfaithful church who sits upon many waters. Well, okay, let's, before we jump to any conclusions, let's see what else the Bible says. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Now, if the kings of the earth have committed fornication or unfaithfulness, that would tell us that, that the, the political powers, the kingdoms, the nations of the world have gotten mixed up with this, this woman, right? With this church. That this harlot woman has been unfaithful and she's mixing in with politics, religion and politics, mixing it all together and doing so around the world. Okay, that's getting a little closer. You're like, hmm, a big church covering the world and mixed up with the kings of the earth in politics. All right, hmm, that might start to ring some bells. But let's take a look at what else it says in verse 2. It says, And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The problem is, because of her unfaithfulness, there's some wine that makes people drunk. And what kind of wine is this? Do they just hand you a cup? Our brand? I don't think so. <laughs> Although essentially that's what's pictured here. But what is it? This wine. Well, it's false teachings. It, the wine is the teachings. Jesus talks about old wine and new wine and 
you know, what you desire. And, and he essentially is talking about teachings. But here, these teachings are intoxicating. These teachings will, will drunken your mind. They'll cloud your mind so you can't think clearly about God. This wine causes confusion in the mind about who God is. That is the danger of Babylon, the fallen system. The Bible says now in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Hmm. Well, there's a lot in that verse. The Bible says that it's a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. That beast, by the way, with seven heads and ten horns, uh, with our youth, we talked about that a little bit this morning. But the, the beast, the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7, it has how many horns? Ten horns. And that fourth beast was what, which nation? Which empire? Rome. Rome. So the Bible says here that the woman is sitting on top of a beast with ten horns. Okay, a woman, a church who's unfaithful to the teachings of Jesus, who rides on top of a, of a nation, has political power, and that power is Rome. That's not too hard to figure out who that is, okay? So we have a, a global church from Rome, and she's in bed with the kings of the earth. She's got her own political power, church and state mixed. She's a nation and a church. She's global. She's in bed with all the other kings of the earth. She has sacrificed the truth. There's only one church in the world that fits perfectly that description. The Bible mentions also, if that wasn't enough, there's more. In verse 3, it, it mentions seven heads. You might ask, well, what are those seven heads? One of the ways the Bible defines the seven heads is in verse 9. And we'll look at that verse just for a moment here. Verse 9, and here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven mountains. Okay, so if you were to look up city of seven hills or mountains. Any guess what city you would find? Rome. Rome. Yep, Rome, which is, by the way, where the Vatican sits today, isn't it? Rome is the city of seven hills. It was known that way in the ancient world. If you were to go on your phone and type in city of seven hills, you will find Rome. And the Bible also gives us one more picture, one more hint on that, which is in verse 8 of this chapter, verse 18, it says, The woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. In John's day, there was one world superpower, and that was Rome. What was their city that reigned over the kings of the earth? It was Rome. So now you have a woman, a church, who's riding on the city of Rome and infecting the world with false teachings. Is the Bible clear enough? to help us know who this is? I believe so. Very clear. And there's plenty more that it mentions there. The blasphemy. It mentions also in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, which, by the way, are the colors used by the leadership of this particular church organization, church and state organization. It says that she was decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Verse 5, upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. 
Was this organization also guilty of bloodshed? Just a few wars, maybe, started by this organization. Uh, not just a few people that were killed by this organization. People who, in fact, believed the Bible. You know, people who wanted to follow Jesus, but they didn't want to follow what the church was saying or teaching. They were burned at the stake. A lot of, most all these reformers, they faced the stake. Okay? They were, they were tormented and put to death. Millions, historians count that millions of people were put to death in the Middle Ages because of this organization. Now, Revelation focuses from the time of Jesus forward, and in particular, our time. Is that a little bit concerning, that this power will be a key player in the world in the last days? That should be a little bit concerning to us, that this power is a key player in the world today. The Bible mentions her wealth, her giant cathedrals, her gold, her stones, her pearls, everything. And it calls her mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So when the Bible says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it tells us who Babylon is and how Babylon has fallen, right, the system. But it also tells us some scary things here. It says Babylon the mother of harlots. So in that case, is there only one harlot? No. It says she's the mother of harlots. It tells us that there are other harlots, organizations. And this is where we look at our world today and say, Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, help us. Because in the Great Reformation movement, a lot of churches came out of Rome, born from that whole movement and from that church. And you would think that they would stand firm on Bible truth and firm on the gospel. You would think that that would be the case. But it wasn't quite the case. Because after the time of the Reformation, different things started coming in, and then eventually truth began going downhill. And I was just reading something, something the other day, that should be alarming to, to all of us. And I think many of us have heard some of the divisions and things going on in in namedly Protestant churches today, some of the divisions and how they have been separating. I'm just going to give this as an example. Uh, in the, the United Methodist Church, recently, this is big in the news, and I feel sorry for brothers and sisters who are there and going through all of this stuff right now. Uh, there was a big divide because of the church voting officially to ordain gay clergy and perform gay marriages. And if you look at the Bible, that's not something God approves of. And so, unfortunately, this, this church is going through that, where the, the organization itself is codifying, is sanctifying sinful living. Should that alarm us today? That should alarm us. To say, whoa, wait a second here. This, this is wrong. And there's, there's more than that, but that's, that's a pretty big issue right now, right? That has been codified. Sin being embraced by the official organization. And other churches have gone through this in the last 15, 20 years. The Episcopal Church in 2003, the Presbyterian Church. Um, a lot of churches have been going through this kind of thing where sin has been officially accepted and embraced within these organizations. So let's ask the question, are these organizations teaching the gospel or a false gospel? 
because the gospel of righteousness by faith saves us from sin. Jesus pays for our sins and He's not the minister of sin. He teaches us to live righteously. Righteousness by faith. If these official organizations are departing from the truth of the Word of God, they're in trouble. Because the Bible mentions Babylon, the mother of harlots. Not only Babylon was the great whore, but there are other organizations. Now, there are people, there are true Christians in these different places. I mean, there's people who believe in the Lord, who love the Lord, and they're struggling with this stuff. They're wrestling with it, right? And I would say even in our own uh, church, probably there's people who mentally maybe are not aligned with the truth, right? Not aligned with the truth. But I praise God that still the truth has been protected in our organization, you know, in our church. Like, God's doing something. I praise God and I just pray, Lord, save us, right? Lord, save us from this kind of evil that has been put into official organizations and teachings. We want to follow Christ and His truth. Christ and Him crucified. The living Christ by faith, trusting in Jesus, following His word. And so a great call was made to come out of Babylon in the past. Revelation 18 describes a great call for the entire world. He says, he says, come out of her, my people. Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Come out of her, my people, that you partake not of her sins and receive of her plagues. God calls His people out and away from the corruption, away from the sin. He wants us to follow the truth. Now, there are so many prophecies in the Bible, in Daniel, that show us about what would happen. An organization that attacks God, attacks the people of God, uh, casts down the truth to the ground, practices and prospers, attacks the law of God. The Bible is filled with those prophecies, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11. The Bible says they have intelligence against the holy covenant, against the truth, against the gospel against the teachings of the gospel and the relationship of God's law to the gospel, the relationship of Christ, our intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary above. The prophecies describe all of these attacks of the enemy against Bible truth, ultimately against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we look at the second angel and righteousness by faith, I hope we're beginning to see that the only way is through Jesus. The only way is through His truth. That we have to stand united with Christ, following what the Bible says, following God. And he wants us to be together. He wants us to work together. And I thank God for an organization that believes this truth. Because if I was standing in another church today preaching this message, I might be out on my head on the lawn or something like that. <laughs> Um, but praise God, I haven't gotten a rotten tomato or a stone yet. Um, hopefully I'll be okay after church. But, <laughs> you know, we want to follow Christ. We want to follow His truth. We don't want to follow the counterfeits and the deceptions. The Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it's twice fallen. And we want to follow Christ. We don't want to fall, we want to follow Jesus. The only way to stand is through Jesus Christ. Amen? Through through. Christ and His righteousness and following the way of Christ that changes us. He's interceding on our behalf. He is working to make us His own holy people. God wants to do that in our lives today. Uh, shall we seek the Lord in prayer here together? Our Father in heaven, thank You for Your incredible love. Thank You for Your truth, Lord. 
I pray that you will do a great work in our lives. Change us through the power of Jesus, through the power of the gospel. Lord, we want that peace today with you. We want peace in our hearts that we receive Jesus by faith. We receive that great sacrifice, that one and only sacrifice by faith. And we receive your perfect righteousness to cover our faultiness. And Lord, we want to live the way of righteousness through the grace and power of Jesus. Jesus is not a minister of sin, but a minister of righteousness. Lord, we want to learn from our dear Savior, Jesus, and be empowered through Jesus to live a life that will bring honor and glory to your name. So please guide us, Lord, in this way, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. It's been great having you as a listener. May God richly bless your day. I look forward to having you join me for the next podcast. Blessings and take care.